0: Welcome to this week's show of Who Cares, What's the Point? The podcast about the mind for people who think. This week's show, I'm talking with Professor David Sparra, And he is really interested in close relationships and its link to health. And in particular, the paper that we're talking about today looks at the relationship between divorce and health. And we know that there's a very large literature linking the experiences of separation and divorce to risks for a range of poor health outcomes later on down the line, including early death. But what's far less clear is the mechanisms that connect that risk to the outcomes. And there's been a few mechanisms identifying the literature But what the central point of this paper is, is that we seem to have a lot of data, but we don't seem to be using the theory particularly well to understand why there is this link and how it expresses itself in poorer health outcomes. We also talk a little bit about big data and how it's important when you're looking at big data sets, which are being increasingly used now by governments and companies, is that you go in with a theory. And you don't just test for correlations and see random associations and then try to make something out of that. It's really important to get that the right way around. David and I talk about his paper and some of those issues. Please have a listen and make up your own mind. Thank you very much for coming on the show. I um, always start with asking people how they got interested in this line of research that we're going to talk about.
1: Well, sure. Thanks for inviting me. I'm uh, really glad to be talking with you and telling you about the work we're doing here uh, at the University of Arizona. So how did I get started? Um, I don't know. It was the confluence of a variety of things, but I started work on non-marital breakups as part of my dissertation research at the University of Virginia. Uh, I, I had started off my graduate career as primarily a child psychologist and was working with someone who's very well known in the area of children's responses to marital conflict, uh, this person named Bob Emery. And Bob also had a variety of theoretical ideas about how adults grieve the end of marriage. And I had a background in um having done some attachment research, my honors thesis while I was an undergraduate here in the U.S. was with a woman named Cindy Hazan, who did a lot of seminal research on adult attachment theory. And so we sort of took these early models about how adults might grieve the end of their marriage, tried to study them in non-marital breakups, which worked out pretty well and was interesting. And then I sort of, at the time, also had a growing line of research around what I called then the psychobiology of affiliation and got really interested in sort of the biology of close relationships and why and how close relationships are good and important for our health. And then I sort of over time merged these tracks to to really get into sort of what is the how do people recover from the stress of the end of a relationship and then also Um, How are those psychological responses related to biological, physiological responses that might have some ultimate bearing on our health? Sure. That's the short answer. <laughs>
0: um, and so maybe we'll come into thinking about what those possible mechanisms might be. Um, yeah. so, but, but maybe we can start off with thinking about divorce and health and what we know about um, what some of the risks of those marital breakups and, as you say, non-marital breakups as well might be for people's well-being, health, social relationships in the future, all kinds of things.
1: Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to, to say more about that. Um, probably the easiest place to start is that in 2011, uh, my, uh, I published with, with some colleagues here at the U of A uh, meta-analysis examining at the time all prospective epidemiological studies linking marital status, in particular being separated or divorced to relative to being married, to risk for uh, subsequent all-cause mortality. So this is risk for overall death going forward. And and what we did was we basically called the literature and they did this study of study of all uh, published reports and to the extent that we could find them unpublished reports about marital status risk for early death, right? So, um, and the, the finding was... Uh, uh, Pretty substantial uh, sort of non-zero effect, uh, reliably different from zero, uh, 23% elevated risk at each successive follow-up period for the people who are in the separated and divorce group. So as deaths start to accumulate in time, it was always the people who were in these groups or on average across the study it was these people who were who were dying earlier. So- Um, we've been working on these problems and trying to to sort of get it set up. But this was really the the sort of main focal finding from a social epidemiological perspective. And then what we've done is we've tried to tie that to the literature and health psychology that is very good at probing these kinds of mechanisms and, and really trying to go from the social epi broad, big samples, broad research questions about whether or not there's a signal to noise effect on health outcomes here and then try to you know do what they say is so called interrogate the mechanisms in the laboratory and try to explore what's going on. So, and we do that in a variety of different ways.
0: Because mm. one of the things that I, I, I guess that you're saying in the paper, this short paper that you've written, is this uh, the title that you have? The subtitle: "Good data in need of a better theory." And I guess that's one of the issues with taking an epidemiological approach, where you're very good at. We can be very good at describing the impacts of particular phenomena on particular outcomes, but perhaps what we're not so great at is thinking about well, how do we track? What are the mechanisms? that might be involved here and not just um, tracking those in in a uh, a random kind of, well, this seems to be related to that, but the theoretical underpinnings that might explain um, how this event 30 years before leads to early death, increased rates of mortality, increased risks of morbidity 30, 40 years later.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And it goes even beyond that. I mean, well, I guess this is one variant of what you're talking about, is that one of the problems with these large data sets And and um, is, is that basically everything is significant. So when you have 30,000 people in your sample and you have 8,000 adults and you have 700 divorces, I'm just making this, how do you deal with the fact that all your all your data is statistically significant. It sort of really recasts the way you think about whether or not effect is meaningful. And we've tried to uh, deal with questions of practical significance and calibration and really try to understand, well, you know, does any would anyone care about this? And why do you know if you told me my increase my risk was increased by X fold, why does that even matter? So that, that's one problem. But the other one is that yes you know, you can be very, as you say, you can be atheoretical in how you approach this data and just sort of say, hey, I wonder if there's an association between marital status and death. Now, you can be atheoretical with psychological data also, of course, but with such big samples comes highly significant results. So you can sort of uh, uh, dig around in there until you find something. So the idea was in, in this paper that you're mentioning, was to really say well what are what are some good theories that we can call on to make specific predictions about who might fare well or poorly and why that might be the case and um, we, we then try to take this into uh, uh, other, other work, right? So we're studying some uh, – we're doing some follow-up work with this in the laboratory and we're trying to make specific predictions. And in this paper, we sort of outline a model about attachment theory and mental representations of significant others and, and also invoke some newer ideas from this social baseline theory
0: so that's where i was going to with this next david perhaps some you know you outline those two possible explanatory theories that take us through understanding what the impacts of divorce and uh, marital breakup might be upon on health if we start with attachment theory because i think that's what people are more familiar with if you could perhaps outline what what attachment theory is and then perhaps what the Um, transduction pathway might be, this kind of conversion of the impact of divorce uh, upon their health and well-being?
1: Sure. Well, there are a variety of ways to think about what attachment theory is, but broadly, it's an ecological and evolutionary model for understanding the ways in which um, people are bonded. And you know, attachment theory has its origins in early social bonding and the, the with the British psychiatrist John Bowlby, and it sort of was initially outlined so that we could understand the child's ties to his or her mother or caregiver. Right. And so there's been so much work on this and, and I think many psychologists, uh, and, and perhaps even the general public, when they hear attachment theory, though, they think about these individual differences that people have. So so when we speak about adults, we're talking about states of mind with respect to relationships. What kind of mental models do you hold about your relationships? So this is, you know, and, and the two dominant models are this attachment, attachment anxiety and attachment avoidance. So the extent to which you get Overinvolved, hyperactivated, and preoccupied with themes about relationships and potential uh, uh, rejection and threats to your relationships, or the extent to which, on the avoidance side, you uh, tend to minimize attachment themes and be hyper-self-reliant. And so there is a whole arm of normative attachment theory that is the way we are attached to each other. And this is very important for understanding grief response. But most clearly, we've done a lot of work around the sort of way in which individual difference of an anxious attachment uh, gets people caught in the aftermath of some sort of breakup, marital separation or non-marital separation. And one of the things that we find, and if you look at the writings of, say, Mario Michelins or Phil Shaver, who have really done a great job. Outlining these emotion regulatory strategies that people use to cope with this real or perceived detachment-related threat. People who are high in anxiety get over involved in their experience. So, this, what does this hyperactivation and this hypervigilance look like? Well, it looks like a chronically activated uh, psychology about what, you know, where do I stand? Are we gonna get back together? What is this person doing? Why is this so terrible? And it looks very similar to other forms of overinvolvement, such as rumination and neuroticism and all the sort of individual difference variables we know are uh, – uh, uh, present people problems for their psychological and physical health. And sure enough, there's now a lot of emerging evidence about the, the sort of an- anxious attachment being, being really key risk for uh, – Uh, for, For poor outcomes. But I think more central to that, it is this over involvement piece where people start reflecting on their difficult experiences and cannot have do not have any meta awareness of what's going on, cannot step back. And they can't create any
0: distance between themselves and their experience. So they're very much caught up in that kind of tunnel experience of really getting very, very caught up. And I, and I guess that you outline that in the um, diagram in your paper um, where you're talking about these background individual differences that um, people bring with them to their separation and divorce uh, and the relationship uh, preceding that. But then it moves on to their cognitive and affective experience of going through that process, which then they take forwards. And depending upon how successfully or not they negotiate that um, experience of being caught up with this, um, then determines things like their health, um, relevant biological changes, and then later on, the more distal outcomes um, that we've talked about.
1: That's a great summary. Yeah, that, that is exactly right. So. Any any good, any good process model that seeks to understand how a psychological event uh, um, is associated with a biological cascade that ultimately influences health must be able to do all this, this sort of bridging work that you describe. And the bridging work is, okay, so we have this over-involvement, but what, what kind of biological response is this over-involvement? You potentiate and it, and if that stayed chronic and activated, well, you know, what, what would that mean? And one of the things we're seeing now is that it, you talked about this, these pathways. I mean, I'm I'm very much focused on this health behavior pathway, too, because one of the things that is important is that and and this, you know, one way to think about it, I talk I talk with my undergraduate students a lot about this, that there's there is good coping and there's bad coping. But it's still coping. Right. So you can you can feel upset about. And so so I was just going to say that one of the the key variables that we're we're, we keep sort of circling back to is is tobacco use and and uh, cigarette smoking in particular. And right. So so if you're feeling stressed about your separation, there are a variety of ways to cope. And one of them is smoking. Smoking is a potent, uh, 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 potently negatively reinforced because it alleviates that sort of noxious state. And so the the relapse rate among former smokers after the end of marriage is very high. And initiation of smoking is very high too. So even when people are sort of out of a risk period. And so This is one health behavior that we just know very causally linked to to biological changes that are disease relevant. And that's sort of where I would, if you, you know, ask me to bet, I would put my money there.
0: Yeah. I think one of the other things that um, really resonated with me when you were talking and also in my field in disaster mental health, and we think quite a lot about resilience, um, however you kind of define and frame that. In terms of health behaviours, as you were talking about, you know, highly anxious um, states that people might get themselves in is around the importance of sleep and the importance of things like, um, you know, what people do in order to enable themselves to to sleep. And often what people do is they uh, self-medicate um, or, or they, they struggle through. And, and that has an impact um, on, you know, as a health behaviour in the more immediate um environment that they find themselves in and, and all the damage that can come with that, but also later on um, with uh, perhaps higher levels of resting blood uh, pressure because of lack of sleep.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So this is the some work we did relatively recently. And one of the things that we found, um, well, I'll also say that self-reported sleep Difficulties. I absolutely agree with you about the sleep disturbance pathway. And we've we've shown in other studies that you can put actigraphy devices on people which actually track their sleep. Right. Like sort of like a Fitbit, but calibrated for the lack of movement instead of actual active movement. And then you can show that sort of this over involvement uh, uh, is associated with poor sleep efficiency, being the amount of time you're asleep relative to the total time you're in bed. And in other work, we, we took self-reported sleep problems after separation and tracked the persistence of these sleep problems and then increases in resting blood pressure. But I was going to say that I just don't think self-reported sleep problems. I mean, it, it's OK, but it's maybe not great. But in that study, we found a lot of caveats. In that study, we found, though, that for people who continued to report ongoing sleep problems after about 10 weeks to, to three months after their separation. Okay, so so those were the people who sh- saw uh, future increases in their blood pressure. So I think that sleep upheavals are a normal part of how people cope with stressful events. Mm. You know, it's, it's just it's just part of the the mix. Mm. But if it's still going on after three months, we were sort of speculating that this was, you know, maybe a, a warning sign.
0: True. Um- One of the other pathways that you've um, specified in in the diagram you have here is around social and financial resources. And I think it might be a good little introduction into thinking about um, social baseline theory as well in terms of the degree of proximity to other people, because I guess that that becomes um, a major um, uh, crucible for thinking about how it is that we're connected with others and uh, that as an explanatory mechanism.
1: Sure. Yeah, I'm glad you brought this up. So in this paper, um, this paper is written with my colleague Jim Cohn at the University of Virginia. And Jim is sort of the real thought leader in outlining the elements of social baseline theory. This is his theory. I've sort of tagged along for fun in some papers, but you know, a, a large part of the intellectual development, majority of it is, is his work. And basically, the model, the theory proposes that proximity to other people is sort of the the default position of human evolutionary development. So so uh, uh, our our co-development over the course of evolutionary history involve close others and this process is critical for survival because other people help guide the way in which we perceive how perceived demands in the physical environment, and then how costly it will be to deploy resources to solve those demands. So the the default mode is embeddedness, and that's mm-hmm. the default of the state of the organism. Um, and we're designed to be in these relationships. And then deviations from that degree of embeddedness create more adaptive problems that we have to solve. And for the 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 sort of extension to divorce is not very difficult at all, right? Because the social baseline model is really about the evaluative calculus of demands in the environment that with multiple people in your immediate social context, things just don't look as bad and as arduous. Now, the model really hasn't gotten into sort of the nuance, right? So what if what if you're in you're in relationships but they're all really conflicted? Maybe it makes things suck even more. But but you know for for our purposes we sort of think most simply that divorces from separation, whatever, is from two people to one, two to one. And how what what kinds of challenges does this mean that a person has to face? Well there are obvious ones that are that are, have to do with financial resources, logistics, childcare—none of which should be trivialized at all. But the the sort of bigger, you know, the sort of more nuanced questions are also about, you know, what, how does this subtly change how we, evo- we we evaluate the social environment and all these sort of potential threats out there? Yes,
0: yeah. yeah. I, I, you know, one, one of the things that strikes me when I when I think about social baseline theory is that we take it as such a cultural underpinned given that it's the individual that is the normal state of affairs, that we conduct our lives as individuals and then we make a decision to connect with other people, say, like in a marriage or in in some other intimate relationship, right. right? Whereas actually this argues the other way around. It's actually the normal state of affairs is for us to be connected with other people, and it's when those people are removed that we, we see the deterioration of our physiological status because actually we're having to budget to spend more energy on doing whatever it is, whereas actually this idea of um, normative attachment to another person that we co-regulate. It's, it's, a, state, right. it's a state of co-regulation.
1: Exactly, exactly. And that's, that's you know, Jim and I come together around that piece. Uh, and that's where I've done a, a bit of work trying to understand, you know, what is it we lose when we lose a relationship? We lose this this interdependence that exists across multiple psychological levels of analysis and then an intertwined biology that basically helps us regulate basic metabolic systems. Um, we're just, you know, we have a way better language for explaining these things than we do scientific understanding still because they're complex, they're nonlinear, they're, you you have dynamic interacting people, but you know, I, the idea makes sense. And the idea that, that one is the fundamental unit of analysis seems at this point, pretty misguided, but every, you, you know, you're exactly right. That everywhere you look, uh, this is the, this is the default assumption in the U S society, at least. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah, and I, and I think certainly in in the UK and and in um, what we would call Pākehā um, New Zealand culture, um, but Indigenous cultures perhaps look at this in a different way uh, and how people are connected with each other.
1: Absolutely, and there are many different um, you know ethnic groups in the US where social processes are paramount, and there's a whole sort of wide and interesting body of research about the way in which they may be attenuating biological risk. So, for example, there's the well-known Hispanic health paradox. That is that despite relative social disadvantage to non-Hispanic whites, so Hispanics are a greater social advantage, more likely to be in poverty, more likely to be obese, more likely to be diabetic they show a mortality advantage. That is, they are less likely to die from all causes than are non-Hispanic whites. And the current thinking on this is that there are a variety of of culture-based Social dynamics and social processes that are potentiating, or, or that that are, I'm sorry, attenuating this sort of negative, the cascade of negative stress hormones. That you can be, you if you're obese in these communities, or if you have cancer, for example, there are many protective factors that are going to delay that disease process from from ultimately killing you. Uh,
0: so I guess it brings us back to our beginning point and thinking about, okay, so we can describe relationships in big data sets pretty well. We, can, we know that this is linked to, to this under these particular conditions, but unless we have a theoretical explanation um, or at least a model where we can explore why it is that these things are linked, then it doesn't really take us any further forward just describing the relationships A leads to B.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think what I think it all sort of centers around what are you going to put in the middle? And we, we and and that that you look to theory to try to figure that out. Well, I expect that this. You know, this process, the end of a relationship will set in motion these kinds of changes. And, you know, there's a whole literature on the social control of health behaviors and in heterosexual relationships, for example, women tend to be the predominant caretakers uh, for men in their relationships. I'm not saying that that's the only way it is, but that we and we do see a differential risk for men relative to women. Why is that the case? What is lost? And so, you know, understanding different theories and the way they, you know, what they're what they're talking about, what they're predicting with respect to what happens in intact relationships helps us understand how people cope with the end of the relationship. Mm. Yeah, and you have to you you have to you you know, you have to, to know know the theory to know what might go in the middle.
0: Yeah. Uh, And I guess that this is one of the things, as I was thinking about, I was very attracted by your headline, and I was thinking about the idea of, you know, big data sets, aggregated data sets that are now becoming more and more um, widely used by industry, by governments, to try to understand the possible risks um, that um, may be... uh, accumulated and then uh, relevant for some of their citizens, their residents, their employees. And what that might lead to. I guess one of the problems that I um, see in those sorts of aggregations is that it gives you a very high level uh, reading of what this impact might be, but it doesn't, um, you lose a lot of the nuance here without having um, some kind of theoretically driven model to understand what those differences in experiences might look like which then aggregate up to a particular effect, but actually there may be particular groups that might be really at risk here, and others are, are, are unaffected. I think you talk a little bit about that in the paper.
1: Yes, and I think that the, very broad, the broadest point here is that we are so biased, we humans, including me, are so biased in our information processing setup that we look for causality everywhere. And the, the, the problem with the superpower big data sets is that the correlation just doesn't equal causation. And, and, and we get tricked into that because we find relationships and we find relationships that we want to see. And, you know, in, in my own work, we tried to set up protections against this. So, for example, you cannot randomly assign people for, to, to divorce. Obviously, you cannot randomly assign people to good relationships. Obviously, but you can experimentally alter these relationships and try to improve health functioning by, say, improving um, improving relationship quality and and t- trying to go between different methodologies. Yes, okay, we've used these big data sets to establish a potential relationship. Now we better push on that in different ways and to figure out whether or not that's causal. So for people running around willy-nilly with big data sets and and predictive models, that's great. But I I for myself, I couldn't possibly trust that those relationships are causal. And I think this is a huge, huge problem when it comes to the study of relationships in health, because we have we have tremendous data showing meta analytic gains data saying that you know loneliness is associated with risk for early death say you know and i i i buy that i'm in that sort of field but you know why and we don't have really great data to explain that case and and there's theories right so there are a variety of good theories and now we need to try to figure out how that would work experimentally, because that's the holy grail of causality. And I haven't seen any great experimental studies showing that, hey, you know, if you actually improve sleep quality among people who are lonely, then you get this downstream change in the, you know, systemic biomarker C-reactive pr- protein, which is implicating the development of cardiovascular disease. Wow. Then that's a huge step forward for everyone.
0: True. So, where next for you, um, David? And given that you've written this paper around um, theoretical underpinnings of, of this relationship, I think we we get what what the point is here and why we should care about this. Um, wh- where is it that this is going for you next?
1: Yeah, I mean we're we're trying to um, follow up on some experimental work that I've done. I'm really trying to push experiments and and methodologies in general that help us understand causality. So we're trying to follow up some of the divorce work by focusing on this over-involvement construct and using tools similar to the ones Dave Barlow has developed as part of his unified protocol for the target for for treatment of emotional disorders to see if we can sort of identify people. You know, neuroticism is making a comeback. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to 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 think about neuroticism as the sort of main moderating variable, and then go ahead and try to target those people. Because we all, we have a, a good evidence that there are only certain people who are at risk for these poor outcomes, and that this sort of main effect story is, is largely driven by moderators. But we're also doing some really unique stuff, I think, on the other end, which is we're trying to alter health behaviors. And so this is beyond the divorce arena, but we're trying to take more communal approaches toward relationships to alter health behaviors. And in particular, we have an intervention that's developed with a colleague named Mark Wisman at the University of Colorado, where we sort of take couples in which one person is pre-diabetic, so at risk for developing type 2 diabetes, and we sort of treat them as a couple rather than relying on this Uh, exclusively knowledge deficit, individual focus of many public health programs, we invert the paradigm and say, okay, well, you know, how are you going to change together? What can you guys do differently in how you live your life? And then see if this sort of forestalls the risk or alters uh, um, glucose levels and those kinds of things.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's show. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it. um, Leave a review on iTunes. Send it out via email to your colleagues or via Twitter or Facebook. However it is that you prefer to communicate with people. You can find us on Twitter at WCWTP or myself, Saab Johal, who is your host and producer at SARB Saab, on Twitter. You can also find the show, Who Cares, What's the Point, on Facebook. You can come to whocareswhatsthepoint.com. And you can also find us um, on other good channels and all apps that manage podcasts, including iTunes. So until next week, have a great week and keep listening. Who cares? What's the point?